Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 539. And this is a big one this week, listeners. I'm joined joined by Loki, who I had on in 2021. And we talked then about Israel and Palestine. And he's one of the most informed people, the most articulate people in the history of it and the and most up to date on it. So I wanted to get him on to talk about all that's been going on, because obviously it's it's horrific. And I often think that podcasts sometimes aren't the right place for this because the nature of podcasts is they tend to take, you know, for my podcast, I'm normally recorded like a month in advance, but we managed to get some time and we moved some things, I moved some things around re- release wise. So we recorded this on Monday night and we're getting it out. Buddy Peace is turning it around quickly. So it's, it's relevant to you, but I want to kind of just quickly say, I hope everyone's holding up okay and I hope you're well. I've had a few people reach out to me previously to say, why haven't you commented much on all that's going on? I've shared a few things in my story, but um, number one, don't do that. Like People are dealing with these things in their own ways. I personally have been reaching out to to Jewish friends, to Muslim friends, to Palestinian friends, to to check in on them and see how they're doing. Um, I don't think we need to be rushing to social media to see what The Rock thinks much less what Scroobius Pip thinks. I think we should be going to journalists and people who can speak in an educated manner on this, like Loki. But I will say that something I see a lot is people saying it's very complicated. And, you know, there are parts that are complicated. It's why I wanted my kind of first comment on this to be an hour-long conversation with someone who knows what the, f- the fuck they're talking about rather than me just flapping my gums but there is a lot that's not complicated about it. The Hamas attack on October 7th, killing innocent civilians, many of which were children, is f- fucking horrible and wrong. There's nothing complicated about that. You can say there's complications in in looking at the history and what causes someone to become r- 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 radicalised and so on and so forth. But that's, that's explanations that doesn't justify, right? Israel's reaction killing so many innocents, over 10,000 now, 4,000 of which are children, and breaking the Geneva Convention in so many ways and any rules of a just war, that's not complicated to me. That's fucking wrong. It's horrific. It's awful. I don't find any complication in that. I think it's deplorable. I think it's illegal. I think it's war crimes. Anti-Semitism, I don't find that complicated. It's fucking horrific. It's wrong. At all times, it's somehow feels even more disgusting when these people with these fucking horrific views use a tragic, horrific conflict like this to give them a license to spout their their hatred more publicly and more openly and not hide it in the fucking shadows where they deserve to sit until they wither away. It's horrible and wrong. It's not complicated. Islamophobia and the rise in Islamophobia as well, again, at all times, but in particular, you know, the rise that is once again being tagged on by scumbags to this horrific situation um, and giving them license and comfort to speak their shit more openly with less risk of getting smacked in the face. It's fucking horrible and wrong and it's not complicated to me. And crucially, when speaking with my accent, the British support and response recently and historically, along with the American support and response recently and historically, is fucking horrible and wrong and that's not complicated to me. So we're about to have an hour-long conversation about how complicated it is. And I urge you to, to listen to this and share it with as many people as possible and follow Loki online, L-O-W-K-E-Y online with the O being a zero. And, and, and continue to be educated on this. But as said, there's a lot that you shouldn't be finding too complicated or needing to shy away from. Um, there's also a line in a song by Wheelchair Sports Camp that talks about what a privilege it is to be able to take a break from this all. And that's not me saying, don't take a break. Look after your mental health. I start this conversation by checking in on Loki to see how he is doing. But it is to say, be aware that we're lucky to be able to do that. We're lucky to be able to put down a phone and not think about it for a bit or distract ourselves with art. I'm a big advocate of distracting yourself with art. Yeah, that's kind of all I've got to say in in my little intro. Let's get on 
with the podcast. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 539 with Loki. I'm here today with Loki. How are you, man? I'm fine, bro. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. But genuinely, how are you? Because there's a lot going on in the world and you're doing a lot at the same time. So so are you good? Are you managing to uh, to look after yourself and your own mind in in these mad times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a person who was fortunate enough to stay in Palestine for almost a year. I um, visited Gaza as well. So, you know, have family intermarried with uh, Palestinians, have a lot of friends there. So it is definitely something that it touches you on a visceral uh, level mm. with a lot of the images coming out and the things that are happening. So it is it is challenging. It is challenging, but I'm I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. All good. Good. Well, I'm 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 glad to uh, to hear it. Obviously, I mean, I've got you here today to to talk about Israel and, and Palestine. I want to talk about loads of stuff. I want to talk about Palestine Action, who we talked about when you were on this podcast two or three years ago. And that's yeah. not me kind of flexing to say we've been discussing this for a long time. It's to say <laughs> that this isn't something that started on October 7th, which, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's to kind of make it clear that this is a long-term conflict and issue. So can you kind of start by giving some kind of explanation of of what this conflict is and how it all kind of have started and has evolved, I guess. Yeah, so if we look at it from the late 1800s, mm-hmm. what you have is the Ottoman Empire entering into the weakest uh, economic phase that it had. It became known as the sick man of Bosphorus. Um, and Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire at that time. The Ottoman Empire became so weak that citizens of European countries were actually not governed by Ottoman rules at that time. So if as a US citizen or as a French citizen or as a British citizen, you were in that country, you could not be held accountable to the laws of the country at that time. It had become reliant on the Germans heavily. The Germans built um, a train line that led from Haifa to other parts of Palestine to Iraq. You know, So for my family, they used to travel from Iraq to Palestine by train. And, and it was essentially part of the same political unit, which was the Ottoman Empire. There was a law change known as the Tanzimat, the Tanzimat, which basically allowed the space for feudalists and wealthy urban people to basically claim land that didn't belong to them. So land that belonged to peasants and agricultural workers, fellahin is the word in Arabic. You know, peasants is definitely not a word that I would even use, but it's the sort of closest to what fellahin is. Mm -hmm. But the Tanzimat opened up the space for those who belonged to what was a political movement that was very much a product of modernity and the European colonial adventures in the rest of the world, which is the Zionist movement coming out of Europe in the late 1800s. They opened up the space for bits of land to be bought. And this is also what the Tanzimat did. And so essentially what you have is you have, for instance, Jewish people in Russia having various forms of political unfreedom. They were in the Pale Settlement where they they didn't have proper legal status. You had um, across Eastern Europe uh, different uh, conditions for um, Jewish people. You had early Zionist thinkers like uh, uh, Leo Pinsker, for example, Mm -hmm. in his pamphlet Auto-Emancipation. It's this focus on the idea of the state delivering a, a certain level of not only protection, but also a realization of rights. And so, you know, Leo Pinsker, for example, who was a non-Palestine-centric Zionist um, and one of the earliest Zionists, his idea was the formation of some form of colonial state, but not necessarily in Palestine. Mm -hmm. And then you had the thinkers that came after him, like Nathan Birnbaum, who coined the phrase Zionism, um, who later became an anti-Zionist. 
And then you had Theodore Herzl, who is credited as being the founder of Zionism, but really he was the organizer, the diplomat. And then what he had attempted to do was lobby the Ottoman authorities to allow this uh, colonial movement from Europe that had been largely inspired by figures like Cecil Rhodes, largely inspired by other uh, European colonial movements, trying to lobby uh, the Ottoman authorities and the British authorities to facilitate the founding of a colonial entity um, within Palestine, which at that time, it had a Jewish community, which was, some estimates have it at between 5 to 2% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vast majority of the population were Christian and Muslim. And with time, the Zionist movement became more slanted towards the vision of a gentleman by the name of Vladimir Jabotinsky. So Vladimir Jabotinsky was inspired by uh, Mussolini and uh, fascists in Ukraine also, and had a very fascistic vision of the way in which this colony could be constructed. In his book, The Iron Wall, he, he says clearly that no indigenous population will accept the rule of alien invaders. Seeing himself as an alien invader, he said the only option for us to deal with what we're trying to build in Palestine is to banish the inhabitants outside of an iron wall. But, you know, it's not to say that there's a sort of fascistic turn with Jabotinsky, because even with Herzl, you know, one of the things that he wrote in his uh, famous book, The Judenstadt, now he, he envisioned the idea of the, the language of Israel would be German. He didn't mm. see it as being Hebrew. He never spoke Hebrew. Um, it wasn't a widely spoken language at that time. It, it had a renaissance through uh, the founding of the state. But, you know, one of the things that Hertz was said in this book is we have to spin it, that spirit, the penniless population across the borders to other places where they can find work. So it was at root, you know, with, like I said, the exception of Leo Pinska, who had this idea of a non-Palestine-centric Zionism. But you also had the options that the British gave to the Zionist movement. They offered part of Uganda. They offered, there was Argentina was discussed as a possible destination. But uh, as I say, the the British in World War One uh, made the promise of the Balfour Declaration, which had taken place with Chaim Wiseman, who was a key uh, Zionist lobbyist based in Manchester. He had helped the British come up with a method through which they made um, smokeless gunpowder, because halfway through World War One, the British were no longer able to import the material they needed to do that from Germany, um, ironically. Yeah. And so Chaim Wiseman carried great favor with the British political elite and was then therefore able to forge this document, the Balfour Declaration, which the foreign minister of Britain made as a promise, despite the fact that Britain was not even in possession of the land. It was a few years later that Britain took over the land and then started to implement what was this separatist idea, but also it was reliant on humans from outside of Palestine coming into Palestine. You know, and there was parts of the Zionist story, figures like Martin Buber, who believed in a sort of peaceful form of integration and absorption within Palestinian society. Mm-hmm. There was even a movement of, um, they, they called them the Hebrewites. They believed that the Palestinians should be converted to Judaism. But these were never movements that had much more than 100 people advocating for them. As I say, the main thrust of the Zionist movement was between Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky. And they pushed very hard and used population transfer methods in order to meet their objectives. The Jabotinsky side were at odds with the British and went to war with the British at different points. The Ben-Gurion side worked with the British. And over time, it was a war of attrition to push the Palestinians out and demographically engineer the space so that there was a dominant group over another group. And so the climax of it, despite the fact that before the Nakba of 1948, which is the foundation of the State of Israel, Mm. 400,000 Palestinians had been displaced. Partly that was through uh, British punitive punishments. You know, a lot of the things that Israel does today were done first by the British. So the practice of demolishing homes 
for punitive reasons, the British did that um, in Palestine first. You know, so many words came from the British role in Palestine. So for instance, duff, to duff someone up. Right. This came from a particular British general who was oh, well right. known for beating up and torturing uh, Palestinians. Wow. In the use of Palestinians as human shields, this was done by the British first. They used to use Palestinians as minesweepers um, when they captured them. And so anyway, I guess to fast forward a bit, what happened in uh, 1948 was the displacement of almost a million Palestinians and then the establishment of a state in their place. And according to UN Resolution 194, those Palestinians had the right to go home. They were never able to go home. Some of them tried to go home and were shot by the what then became the Israeli police and the Israeli military, um, referred to as infiltrators. Um, you know, and these are people that have never lived anywhere else. They haven't had mm. any any roots anywhere else. I mean, you know, there was some movement from Lebanon to Palestine at different points during the Ottoman Empire, but it's it's essentially about the imposition of a new demographic reality that has a power imbalance in it. It's an asymmetric uh, equation in terms of of power, and 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 also the the sorry, just last thing, and also the sort of privileging of somebody that could be from anywhere in the world who then has the right to then go and become a citizen of this place. But yet the people that have lived there for many, many generations just don't have rights. You know, there's millions of Palestinians in refugee camps all around Palestine in Lebanon, for example. Four generations of Palestinians in refugee camps not able to go back to Palestine because of this uh, new reality that has been enforced upon it. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is the further push in trying to get the Palestinians in Gaza, who number about 2.3 million, and push them into the Sinai Desert. Mm. And this is a stated objective of the Israeli government at this stage. And so that's a greater population displacement that took place in 1948. And that's one of the disturbing things is seeing some of the official statements and if official, like, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, you know, these things are complicated, it's hard to, you know, people are reacting, all this. But when you see some of the official statements, they're, they're horrific. And as you say, um, you know, it obviously is complex. Like, the Jewish people do deserve a homeland. But even if you look, like, you, you spoke about the power imbalance, you look at the proposed kind of division that the, that the UN proposed in 1947 compared to what it is now, it's ridiculous. It's it, the Palestinian people being crushed and crushed into a smaller amount of 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 space as as each year has gone by. And again, it's completely crucial to to note the British and the American r- roles in this. The British in recent history are the the great colonizers as such. And from you know then, from then and before, I guess we've played a huge role in this. So it's it's not just a thing that's happening in a faraway land. It's It's got our fingerprints all over it as well. I guess to bring it up to now then, this has been a conflict going on, f- on for a long while. It's quite plain to see that the Hamas attack on October 7th, which killed children, you know, innocent people, uh, uh, you know, is then used in the way that Britain and America used 9-11 and, and and such things to then react completely disproportionately in the Middle East. Is that how you see this kind of thing, that the disproportional reaction is, yeah, with that as the focus or distraction, I guess? Partly, but I also think that, you know, Israel has a long history of lying about military expositions. It, it lies when it kills people. It lies when things happen to Israel. You know, there are witness accounts that clearly state, for instance, at Kibbutz Biri, Yasmin Porat, she has stated that the hostages that were with her were killed by Israeli tank shelling. And there's an existing directive within the Israeli military that was developed in Lebanon during the occupation in 82, uh, which my great-grandmother, you know, we still have the bullets from Israeli military that were fired into her flat in 1982 in Lebanon, when she was in her 80s already and sheltering in the hallway. And Israel killed 20,000 people in the invasion of Lebanon in 1982. 
But anyway, they developed during that period uh, this, this Hannibal doctrine. And when it's implemented, what it says is that to avoid having the enemy have your hostages, you can kill those hostages. And we've seen it. And so the events at Kibbutz Biri were this particular Palestinian group had people with them that they were holding. And the Israeli military came in and shelled the buildings. And that's not just of the witness testimony of Yasmin Porad. That's also of the witness testimony of others in the um, settlement. But then also you have the case of the Eretz crossing, which was seized and which uh, General Brigadier Rosenfeld called in an airstrike once mm. the, the base had been overtaken. So obviously I'm not saying that people weren't killed, they were killed. But what is also true is that the Israeli military has killed some of them and is covering it up. Right. And and that's important to have as part of our understanding of how this has all happened and absolutely the proportion. But this is not the first time that the numbers have been vastly disproportionate in, in, in this way and that civilians have been targeted in the way they have been and that children have been killed en masse and that hospitals and essentially we are seeing the targeting of civilian infrastructure in such a way as to make the space of Gaza uninhabitable for Palestinians. We're seeing the targeting of fishing boats. We're seeing the targeting of water tanks. We're seeing the targeting of solar panels. We're seeing a place that is deprived of food, water, electricity, and fuel for a month. Mm. For a month. Mm. There's, there's, there's nothing that can justify doing that to two million people. Hundred percent, and and again, it's it's the bit that I find confusing from a political point of view with regards to support from the UK and the US is that so much of what they're doing is breaking all Geneva Code, or even the old kind of a just war, kind of the rules of what is a a just war. It's all being broken, so it's so hard to get your head around how these governments can not only stand by but actively support it's like it's not a case of going well you know we're staying out of it it's it's the active support of of these war crimes essentially and publicly like the act standing yeah. up on and giving a speech and and declaring these things it's it's mind-boggling yeah and i mean also the idea that as an occupying force the right to self-defense is the same as the occupied People, you know, occupied people have a right under several UN resolutions, the right to armed resistance. That doesn't include uh, the targeting of civilians, but it does mean that that right does exist. In terms of the, um, the British involvement, like you say, it's not just a case of them sort of standing by or turning a blind eye. They've sent a spy plane, a British spy plane, which is assisting Israel. There's been US Reaper drones going over the top of Gaza since the 7th of October, um, which are assisting Israel in its campaign also. The US, as you know, have sent these uh, fighter ships and also the British have sent these uh, naval vessels as well. So we are absolutely direct participants in a war against a non-state actor and the war which generally consists of the collective punishment of a civilian population in a concentration camp. So it's it's grim. It's truly yeah. grim. And I think it's tapped into, unfortunately, what I see as kind of genocidal impulses that exist within our society. Because when we spoke about the war on terror, like you said, you were talking about instances where, you know, horrific, you know, a few thousand people had died. But then the basis and the logic that we accepted for the death of a few thousand people was, okay, we will then go and exact a form of collective punishment on a whole population, mm. that being the occupation of Iraq and the occupation of Afghanistan. This is, these are whole populations of, of tens of millions of people that are going through that process of occupation, military occupation, because of something that has happened here that has affected a certain amount of people. So it's that combination of disproportionate and threat inflation, which essentially has a genocidal basis to it. Because you're yeah. saying, well, it's, it's, it's justified me. If you were to apply that to everyday life, it could be defined as self-defense. If someone punches me in the street, 
to me going and killing everyone in yeah. the entire block of flats they live yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing about that that is self-defense. And so, yeah, un- unfortunately, our political and media class are completely lock in step with, uh, you know, not all of them. There's been those that are more independent-minded, uh, but so many of them are just lock in step with what is happening. And it's been quite tough. It's been quite tough. How, how, how have you found that going and kind of trying to talk to these people? I saw a post today that was kind of <laughs> saying, look, even Piers Morgan is against it now. So we must be at a bad state when when even he's back at it. But you went and and, and talked to Piers and and called him out on his 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 lack of journalistic integrity, I guess, with certain people he's spoken to during this conflict, about this conflict. How do you find enge- engaging with the mainstream media in that respect? Because there's a school of thought to leave them to the, the their nonsense to not go on their platforms, but that's not going to reach people. That's not going to help people. So I guess you have to go and, and make these arguments, right? And have these, these, these fights, essentially. Well, what's quite sad about all of it, and through the war on terror, you realised it, is that if you are taken a particular way by the British media, you going and getting interviewed about foreign policy could ruin you, could ruin your life. Mm. It could lose your job. It could even get you criminally prosecuted. It could, you know, you're walking into a trap, unfortunately. And I knew that from the beginning with him. And he's not massively sophisticated. He just will have a sort of line that he'll try and repeat again and again ad nauseum. And then he'll try and individualize what are macro issues. And he'll try and turn it into a personal moral compass issue rather than you actually being able to reach somewhere interesting. And and so he obviously tried that with me. And, you know, as you said, you know, he had interviewed just before me on the same show, Mark Regev, who was the spokesman for the Israeli military, and also David Petraeus, who was the head of CIA and the head of the US forces in Iraq. You know, these are men with thousands, thousands of bodies under their belt, whoever you ask. You know, who, 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 no one can deny that these are two men that have had involvement in the killings of thousands of people. And the manner in which they were interviewed, when juxtaposed with the manner in which I was interviewed, is I was interrogated as if I was some sort of criminal or that I was sort of carrying a sinister agenda or I was somehow somehow lesser, you know? Whereas ultimately, these men were seen as sort of oracles, especially the way he interviewed Petraeus. You know, an oracle of sort of some sort of deep wisdom about the hard choices of the world. It's like, no, man. You know, and I I wasn't gonna accept him to set the narrative of what this interview was going to be about, especially when the stakes were what they were. You know, it would be one thing if we were talking about some sort of gossip about my private life or something or some sort of celebrity kind of thing. But no, we're, you know, we're talking about, I'm going on air and there's a thousand five hundred people under rubble right now in mm. Gaza. And mm. you want to talk about me and you want to talk about me being an immoral person. It's just, it's just, it's just same old celebrity gossip fraff really. And yeah, it was not, it was, you know, if, if I'd have allowed him to sort of uh, lead the conversation, I don't think it would have gone in a, in a particularly productive or interesting or original place. Mm. Well, I mean, l- looking at action that can can be taken, there's two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the overwhelming turnouts for protests all over the world, peaceful protests, multicultural pr- protests, obviously, again, mind-boggingly dubbed by our government as, as hate marches when couldn't be further... F- from the truth what's your views on this it i feel it's tough because i got really disheartened when we had the the million man march against iraq and it didn't do anything because my outlook was well there's a million of you Mm. like make it do something it's Mm. like again i think peaceful protest is is an important part of the journey but but at times it can be be tough There's a line, and I'm not, again, I don't want to sound as if I'm <laughs> inciting this, because we'll talk about the positive action that can be taken, but there's a line by a poet called Mythago, a Mythago craze, who says, if they're going to call our vigils riots, give them riots. And it's a tough one, because I think in the days of social media, that's the only thing that gives me hope. 
is in the days of the Million Man March against the war in Iraq. We didn't have social media where this could be documented and it could get out there. At that point, yeah. any reporting was mainstream media, so it could be co- covered up in ways or downplayed. It does feel that weekend after weekend, all over the world, millions of people are going into the streets to say that this isn't acceptable and our government's involvements isn't acceptable. Yeah. That's got to be worth something, right? Again, I'm grasping here, but it's got to be worth no. something. I mean, I, f- I feel that ultimately what should have happened in 2003 is you should have had a general strike. Um, mm. It should have been industrial action. Um, and that wouldn't have necessarily stopped it or Britain's involvement. It wouldn't have stopped Britain's involvement, I don't think. But I think it would have done a bit more. You know, and marching, I think, is, is good for morale. I think it's good for allowing people to kind of politically organise. But ultimately, I think it, it has its limitations. You know, mm-hmm. there are ways in which you can kind of touch on some of the contradictions that exist. So, for instance, Britain is a signatory to the Arms Trade Treaty. Within the Arms Trade Treaty, Britain has the obligation to, if it has any reason to believe that its exports may be used for violations of international humanitarian law, like the bombing of hospitals, like the bombing of places of religious worship, like the bombing of civilian infrastructure, like the bombing of residential buildings, like all of these things, then Britain should not make those um, exports. And regardless of that, Britain has always still exported weapons um, to Israel. And so I think that's, you know, part of the reason why Palestine action has been successful, because when it's been placed in front of a court, even with just magistrates, judges, but particularly with juries, they look at it and they say, well, this might be criminal damage, but it's criminal damage to stop war crimes. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, vast, vast majority of Palestine action cases are acquitted. So, so let's talk again about Palestine action, assuming the listeners haven't heard our, our original conversation about that. But they're a group who have been protesting and taking action to block the delivery essentially and the and uh, and the making of 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 arms to go out to Israel and to to be part of this in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So what does that that look like? What have the successes been because it's it's so inspirational to see and read about and hear about because you do at times again I think social media really nurtures this. You do feel helpless, but mm. these actions are having an effect, right? There has been numerous I mean, for years now, but particularly recently, there's been great successes. There has. Um, so, for example, the headquarters of Elba Systems, which is the largest um, Israeli arms company, which it provides 85% of the drones to the Israeli military. Palestine Action has, let's just start with that London office, the headquarters, the London headquarters, it targeted it over 16 times with people just impeding the ability for people to go in and out of the office, Mm -hmm. generally making a nuisance around the office, um, not hurting anyone, sometimes painting on doors, sometimes sticking themselves to the doors, generally making it hard for business as usual to carry on. And so eventually Elbit Systems permanently vacated that office. Another important victory was in Oldham, where you had Ferenti Technologies, which was an old company from Oldham that was procured by Elbit Systems, so it became a subsidiary of Elbit Systems. And thanks to the local community, um, protesting outside of it every other week and Palestine Action going in and shutting it down, it got to the point where the uh, company was sold actually at a loss. And then eventually the factory itself was sold on. Um, you saw the British Ministry of Defence actually cancel £280 million worth of contracts with Elbit Systems. In really interesting statement, the British government said because of issues around operational sovereignty. So it brings into question this idea, you know, because essentially over the last three or four decades, and this is different from Thatcher's time, you know, because during Thatcher's time, she actually expelled the Mossad base in Britain because of the killing of the Palestinian cartoonist Najila Ali in London by people who were working for Israeli intelligence. But in a, in, a, in a difference between Thatcher, you've seen across the last three to four decades, the complete integration of British 
Israeli and US uh, intelligence services um, in major ways. You know, the British police rely on a company started by former Israeli intelligence, you know, veterans, particularly of Unit 8200. They rely on this company, Celebrite, for the hacking of phones. So it's quite, you know, and this was one of the policies that Netanyahu set into place in 2012, which was the moving of people from Unit 8200, the tech unit, the signals communications unit, the equivalent of GCHQ, mm-hmm. um, which spies on communications of Palestinians. It had 43 whistleblowers come out of the unit who said they were using that information to blackmail Palestinians. So Netanyahu's policy in 2012 was to move these people into private companies from Unit 8200. And, um, you know, one of the manifestations of that has actually been something called uh, the UK Israel Tech Hub, which is an organization which is based in the British embassy in Israel, is staffed by former Israeli military and intelligence personnel and headed by somebody who was the director of the Israeli finance ministry. But it's funded by the British Foreign Office. It's funded by the British Department of Trade and it's funded by the British embassy in Israel. But it exists for the sole purpose of gaining contracts in the British public sector for Israeli tech companies. Right. So it's, it's, it's been an instrument through which the integration of these intelligence services have taken place. So, for instance, you've got um, another, another company that carries out important functions for the British police as well. And interestingly enough, this gentleman, Haim Shani, who leads the UK Israel Tech Hub, also leads a lot of these companies that have got these contracts, mm. uh, particularly like Celebrite, until recently, he resigned recently. So, you know, it's, it, it's been integrated. They are deep, deep, deep allies. And so, in a way, it's not surprising that you'd have sort of an intransigence on the part of the state when looking at uh, these kind of situations. But like you say, it's quite a, it's quite a heavy ask. It's quite a heavy ask because Britain is harming its... And there will be those in the Foreign Office that say this. Britain is harming its, its international reputation by supporting this to such an extent, you know. Well, more and more countries are pulling out of, of support, are pulling out of uh, are stopping their, their, their weapons companies and that dealing in this. So it is coming down to us in America kind of thing. There's, there's more and more countries around Europe and everywhere who are going, no, right, enough's enough in this moment. It's not yeah. to say they're, they're severing their relationship, but they're going, no, right now this needs to stop. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I do, I agree. I think once again, we are harming our, our reputation. But, I mean, that's a topic that's interesting because people who don't know people from around the world don't kind of realise what our reputation is. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, I know during the pandemic, we were looked down upon so massively by so many nations and people and governments and news organisations in in different countries because of how we handled the pandemic. And again, you're looking at the same things here with money going to businesses that have ties to the government and these things being the priority over the humanitarian side of all of this. So, yeah, it's, it's a mad one to think that we can... It's very British to think that we're loved around the world when mm. we're, we're in many parts of the world, we're barely respected after how we... Like, it's statistically proven that we've fumbled the pandemic, you know, mm. worse than the majority of, of the, world. the world. Yeah, true. So again, this it seems like our global reputation isn't something that's particularly on, at the forefront of, of our government's focus at this stage. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on who they think their sort of constituency for this is, because if they look at the United States, then they are, you know, the junior partner to the United States. They uh, assist the United States. They carry out particular services for U.S. foreign policy. And this kind of falls into that. But it is it is interesting, because can you imagine another state having something like the UK-Israel Tech Hub, which is like an organisation that exists it literally exists in the British embassy and is staffed by former Israeli military and intelligence personnel. Mm, I mean, insane, can, <laughs> it just wouldn't happen yeah. in any other context. Would it happen with Russians? No. It would happen with the Americans. You know, there's 12,000 American uh, US soldiers here. So it would happen with the US without a doubt. But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't even happen with the French. It wouldn't happen with the Germans. It mm. wouldn't happen. You can't think of any other allies that something like that 
is the case with. So yeah, it's it's a a sad a sad state of affairs, you know, because the human the human cost of this is 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 absolutely massive, you know. It really is, and and can we we, we circle back quickly? You mentioned the potential impact of of strikes of walkouts. Yeah. We are in an era where we're seeing more civil action having an impact, whether it be nurses, train drivers, all sorts of people striking and getting results. I'm I'm an actor and a and a writer, and uh, and the writers' strike has has had a success. The actors' strike is still going on, but mm. these things are seeing results. But mm. you always think of it as an industry based movement rather than a belief-based movement or a morals-based mm. movement. And I think it's really interesting that a way to make our government listen would be to strike based on, you know, your beliefs of, yeah. of what our government is doing. Because the the economy, the all of that is is what they care about, right? Well, I mean, also, the main unions in this country from Unite to the GMB, they have passed motions for BDS uh, within them. Unanimously, their members voted for BDS as boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel until it complies with international law. Mm-hmm. But they haven't implemented them. And those were those motions were passed around 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a problem. You know, that's a problem because ultimately now is the time when all of those things have to happen. And you worry because... <sighs> The, you know, the Israeli Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, he said, this is going to be three months. Are we really going to go through this for three, for two more months? This level of, of asymmetric violence? What is our, you know, and the scary thing is that the Israelis have monitored what happened in Yemen, what the Saudis did in Yemen, and what happened in Syria. And they've seen what there is a tolerance for in the world. You know, and that's not me saying it, it's come from interviews with particular Israeli officials. The Saudis bombed farms in Yemen a thousand times. They attacked all manner of civilian infrastructure, hospitals, schools, transportation, everything. And essentially, the Israelis saw that you even on top of it, the blockade, you know, the Saudis blockaded Hudaydah and uh, 95,000 children are said to have died in Yemen from starvation. Mm. Poorest people in the world. And uh, the Saudis were back to the hilt by the British. BAE systems did very, very well off that war. Back to the hilt by the US. Raytheon and Lockheed Martin did very well off that war. And so when a war happens, regional actors watch it and see what they think they can get away with next time they have to go to war. And again, the timing of this as well is that you look at Saudi and they're currently putting on some of the biggest sporting events in the world and and the sports washing that is is going into this that's gonna clearly motivate and inspire to go oh here's what we can get away with and here's 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 the price to to wash that away I guess to clean our hands afterwards yeah absolutely and I mean in the case of Syria it's about the human displacement factor so Israel looked at and have directly said, particular officials have said, look, what we envision for the Sinai Desert with the depopulation of Gaza is not that different from what happened in Syria and what happened in Mosul with the uh, the ISIS era. Because the people from those areas, and, and, and again, they compared it to the US bombing of Mosul and Raqqa. They said, look, the US destroyed these places and killed Tens of thousands of civilians. This is the truth. Mm. In that period of getting rid of ISIS, the US carpet bombed the city they were based in and killed 12,000 civilians under Obama. But then what happened to the people that survived? They were then pushed out of those cities and now live in camps and tents in northern Syria and northern Iraq. And so mm. what Israel envisions is a war that looks something like the Saudi war on Yemen and then a displacement where the international community picks up the tab and there's particular sort of economic arrangements with Egypt where the Palestinians are in the Sinai desert and then eventually are absorbed into Egypt proper. And that, you know, and that's, yeah. a, that's a really horrific, horrific um, series of events that we could be looking at. It's truly horrific. And it, and it comes down to value of life, right? Yeah. I can't remember who it was who, I think it might have been James O'Brien recently who was saying, was giving an example of someone who was saying, look, we need to get Hamas. 
we need to get Hamas, you know, this is the cost. And he kind of said, well, what if Hamas were hiding in Birmingham? Yeah, yeah. Would you, would you carpet bomb it? Would, would, you, would you say it's all right? Well, the cost is we need to bomb, bomb Birmingham. Or what if they were phosphorus. hiding in, in no. Bristol? In, yeah. in Bristol, would it? Would you say, well, we need to carpet bomb hospitals, yeah. schools, all of these things? And you'd say no. And that sadly comes down to you having to face that you you value British lives more than Palestinian yeah. lives in this yeah. in this situation. And that's an that's an ugly truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so to, uh, to wrap things up, I want to quickly talk about the need for a ceasefire because I've I, I've heard a few people say that. A ceasefire isn't the answer because there was a ceasefire in place when the October 7th attacks happened. And I agree a ceasefire isn't the answer, but an answer can only come from a ceasefire. Or a a moral answer can only come from a ceasefire. There needs to be a ceasefire and then a solution needs to be found of what is going on there. There needs to be, you know, UN and other input in here's how we solve this, I guess. Because the only other way we get to a solution is is a people are wiped out, is there's no one left to fight back. And that's not the solution we should be looking towards. But but in a way, that is the story of all of this. Yeah, It's been a war of attrition against these people to edge them out more and more, push them out, dominate them more and more, narrow what they have access to spatially. So So what we've seen now is just a really spectacular... It's like pushing fast forward on a, on a remote control. It has mm. gone a million miles an hour in the space of a month. But this has been the process of the way it's the way it's gone um, up until now. Um, but yeah, absolutely, you need a ceasefire as soon as possible. And to be honest, and this is documented in the early days of the bombing after the seventh of October, mm-hmm. the Palestinian side said we will release all of the hostages if the bombing stops. Um, and they were willing to do that. And the Qataris were quite close to clinching the deal on a ceasefire. And Israel just continued bombing. And the thing is, is Netanyahu has a history of seeking to use wars to achieve pretty fantastical objectives and maximalist aims. And that's what he has here. And hmm. it's being used. It's It's not about the hostages, because so many of them have been killed by Israeli bombing. It's not just about that political organization that you just mentioned. It's about moving those two million people, which mm. is just such an, an impossible objective. But they're seeking to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's horrific. Yeah. So we need, yeah, we need a ceasefire ASAP. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And I really appreciate, as said, all that you share on social media. I guess, what do you think the role is of social media in all this? Because I, again, I have mixed feelings of this. I don't think people need to be rushing to see what The Rock's opinion is or, or, <laughs> or any other such things. But I do think it's important that people, people like yourself, people, you know, who can get any news out in Palestine absolutely have yeah. have this access to get this this stuff out yeah, there how absolutely. do you see the role i guess of social media well i mean like you said there's just these amazing brave journalists you know so many journalists have been killed and mm. you know israel has the population registry in gaza the al jazeera journalists who have had their family members killed they've given direct to israel that information of their address in mm. gaza and it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So social media has been absolutely vital because it's allowed these people with nothing else but a camera to just continuously show, uh, you know, imagine if our only window into what was happening in Gaza was the mainstream media, you know, some of it's getting through and there are journalists who are struggling to get the stuff out that are operating in the mainstream sphere. But generally, the framing of things is quite heavily decontextualized. But these, you know, these pictures that we're seeing, you know, I can't tell you how many pictures of of dead babies I've seen. Mm. And, you know, it's horrific and it's harrowing, but it, you know, it is the reality of what's happening. And uh, these brave people that are risking their lives to get that information out to us should absolutely be commended. You know, they are heroes of of human history and, and, you know, they're kids as well. You look at Martez Azaza, for instance, he's like 21. 
Yeah. He's 21. You know, I just, I, I fear, I fear for the humans that will even be salvaged from this situation. How are they going to be able to live a normal life after what they've been put through? Yeah, yeah. It's sad. Right? It's, it's, it's unimaginable. Well, Absolutely. Is there anywhere in particular you would like to point people towards? Obviously, your socials, what's your handles on, on social? Loki Online. Yeah. So it's online with a zero um, yeah. on Twitter and Loki Online on Instagram. But I would say definitely check out Matez Azaiza. Um, he does great stuff. Um, Bisan, I forget her second name. She's... Uh, Sending stuff out from Gaza, Wal Dahdouh, the Al Jazeera um, journalist who his entire family were killed. Wow. Al Jazeera are doing really amazing work. They're one of the only ones that have journalists actually inside there. Um, some of the other agencies do as well. But yeah. <sighs> and again, Al Jazeera is a, a resource that is so overlooked because most people in the UK can, can get that, can follow that, can see yeah. outside of their own you know, our media, I guess. And yeah, yeah. that kind of thing's important. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. I'm going to let you hopefully go and get some rest. But um, <laughs> yeah, a, a big love. This is Thank you, an Robert. intense one. I'm, I'm glad too, we could could come and have a quick talk about it. But yeah. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. I hope there's some, some positivity ahead. Yeah, we hope so. Thank you, brother, yeah. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Loki. Um, I hope this podcast has been of some benefit. Shout out to my friend Molly, who I know is a big fan of Loki, and kind of chatting with Molly at Chris's birthday party recently, where I've been trying to figure out what I can do, how I can comment, how I can amplify. It was... um, yeah, as, as Molly mentioned in um, the great work that Loki is doing that made me go, hang on, I'm going to reach out and see if we can kind of rush something through. I love to Loki. We recorded this at 10 in the evening on a Monday, man. The man's tireless and it's impressive. I want to kind of end by saying be gentle with each other and be kind to each other. You're going to have people who maybe in this moment have different views to you. Try and look and see how their trauma how the real impact it's having on them and their loved ones and their family could influence that. It's easy to sit here, as said, as a British person and go, come on, no, look, how can you not see that that this is unfair and this is unreasonable? And ignore the hurt that, for example, some of my Jewish friends are going through and the fear they're going through because of the rise in in anti-Semitism. And the same with some of my Muslim friends, you know. Be aware that it's all good to be logical and rational, but it's not always possible or it's not always as easy when something is affecting you so deeply. So yeah, all I'm saying is be, as said, be gentle with each other, be kind with each other. And yeah, I'll be back next week. I think I've got like a comedian or a director on next week. So it's going to be a very big change in tone. But, you know, thank you for tuning into this. Share it about if you can. And yeah, be yeah, just be gentle with each other and I'll see you next week. Ta-ta.